Hello, everybody. My name is Peter McMillan, the Executive Officer at NT Shelter. We're coming to you from Larrakia country in Darwin, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to all other First Nations people watching on. Inspired by the young people who race wonderful, colourful coaches, couches each year as part of the Youth Homelessness Matters Day, uh, this is episode one of Sharing the Couch. It's the start of a new initiative at NT Shelter. It's something that's a little bit embryonic, uh, and we're going to have a conversation with thought leaders and uh, people who are trying to make a difference at the pointy end of the system, the housing and homelessness system, which is so important to us up here. I've got a number of people lined up uh, to talk to over the coming months. Our aim is to get to know a little bit more about them, uh, what they're doing at the forefront of our sector, the organisations they work for, and the awesome work they're doing. So our guest today is a guy we often see moderating uh, at national conferences and also in the national media. Today, we're going to turn the tables and we'll get to have a conversation with the well-known, well-respected and very personal Mr. Michael Fotheringham from the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute and better known to some perhaps as Uhuri. So just a little bit about Michael. Michael is a research and policy development specialist with experience in a wide range of areas, including housing and homelessness, public health, urban and community services planning. After joining the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute in 2014, he was appointed executive director in 2017 and is now responsible for setting the strategic direction of the Institute and leading the development of a contemporary and policy relevant evidence base on housing, homelessness and urban issues. Michael has expertise in building research programs and policy agendas with not-for-profit government and academic organisations. Michael has authored numerous peer-reviewed journal articles, book chapters, research monographs, reports, and policy framework documents. He currently serves on a variety of expert advisory panels, including the Australian Government Smart Cities Reference Group, the Housing Supply Expert Panel, the Queensland Housing and Homelessness Research Alliance, the Urban Futures and Sustainable Living Expert Research Advisory Group, and the Homes for Homes Housing Advisory Group. He's also a past president of the Australian Society, Australasian Society, I should say, for Behavioural Health and Medicine, and for many years has served on various human research ethics committees as a representative of the research community. Michael is an in-demand facilitator and conference speaker and experienced spokesperson. We're very happy to welcome Michael Fotheringham. Hello, Michael. Thanks very much, Peter. I think uh, at the end of that extensive bio, we can call it a wrap. <laughs> oh, I, think that's a, I think that's a wrap. I got a bit tongue-tied there. How did I go? Did I get through all it's that? It's a fair bit, isn't it? I, I think... I, we, we might need to edit that one down, I think. Oh, well, <laughs> absolutely. That's, that's great. And you, no, Michael, you and, and, your, and your team there at Ahuri are clearly doing some, some pretty cool stuff. Um, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and, and what you did before you came to Ahuri? And then we'll talk a bit more about, I guess, the work of Ahuri. Sure. I mean, look, that's 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 quite a summary you've given, but um, I guess, in short form, I um, my background is is has always been interested in the link between research and, and policy, and um, you know, my my early career was was as a as an academic researcher in universities and in not for profit environments, um, and I guess in those sort of roles, I had some some frustrations at, at government not picking up on on. The things we were learning and so I'd, I'd spent some time working in government departments and um, trying to leverage better use of, of evidence research um, and you know I've, I've moved between research environments policy environments and the not-for-profit space for, for a number of years I guess mm. 
and and then about 10 years ago found myself at a at a community services organization running a research and policy uh unit there and that was an organization that was building a a, a social housing enterprise as a as an offshoot of it they already did disability housing they did uh refugee housing asylum seeker housing um and, and a range of other sort of residential services and and that got me more interested in, in this space particularly i guess and there the work of a hurry became a, a bit of compulsory reading for me for, for a number of years, I suppose. Mm. And um, when an opportunity came up to join the Uhuru team, I, I left that and, um, right. and I've been here ever since. <laughs> Wonderful. Hey, and Michael, you know, when I came to the sector five years ago, I was actually struck by the level of research, the amount of research that's been amassed over so many years. And I guess the, you know, the credentials of the lecturers and the professors and the academics, I guess, that you work with. What is it that makes Ahuri so well, I guess, regarded in that research capability space? I, I think it's actually a, a pretty unique entity in, in its role as a broker between, you know, we, we take policy questions and turn them into research questions and, and then put them out to, to terrific researchers around the country. We've really worked to build capacity in that space in Australia, and, and we now have really extensive housing research capacity that 20 odd years ago we didn't. Mm. Um, but then we also take those research findings and translate them back into policy thinking. So it, it works the full cycle, and that use, is used to inform our conversations with policymakers about what they need to know next. And it's it's a curated um, agenda each year to to really look to answer new questions and take our knowledge forward to ensure that we can work towards better policy solutions to to the really difficult housing challenges we have. Fantastic. Uh, now, Michael, as we broadcast this, or as we, as we record, I should probably say it's not going to a live audience just yet, maybe down the track someday, but at, for the moment, um, we're not broadcasting live, but we have just got through a federal election with a quite a lengthy six-week campaign period. We've also uh, had a change in government, well, not a change in government, a change in uh, chief minister up here in the Northern Territory as well with a new housing minister that's been sworn in. So we have had a lot of fun in the last few days in terms of change, I guess. Um, but I'm interested in, uh, in what your observations were around the conversation on housing in the lead up to the election. You know, there was a lot of talk about home ownership. Were there any surprises for you about how the messaging around that issue or the level yeah. of uh, interest yeah. Yeah. yeah look i mean i think you know the for me the the six-week period and it did feel like a long six-week period i don't know how the americans do a 12-month a process but <laughs> six weeks seemed plenty but um the, the first half of that period I, I guess housing was not a prominent issue that and um and i was starting to feel that sense of frustration that many in in the housing sector feel when when we're talking about cost of living but for many people, the largest cost of living, um, and one that has in fact grown more than a lot of the issues that were getting attention yeah. um, as, a, as a cost to households, uh, was not getting much attention. But um, the second half, that seemed to turn around a bit. We had um, you know, various announcements from, from both of the major parties. We had quite ambitious um, aims from the Greens as well. Um, and I guess it's good that there was more attention given to it. Um, some of the some of the suggestions that were put forward were consistent with a lot of the evidence, some much less. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess one of the things that, that concerns me is that most of the attention was still focused on demand side measures, mm. actually trying to um, 
get people into home ownership is, is about increasing demand for, for home ownership. We have a supply side issue. Um, and we need to balance those demand, demand side measures with supply side measures. And really, there was no discussion of that from any of the parties or independence for that matter. We're going to talk about independence now too. Sure, so, yeah, that's um, quite, quite, I didn't know what the colour teal meant until a couple of weeks ago. Well, I mean, oh, <laughs> As far as I can tell, it's blue and green combined. Yeah, it <laughs> Absolutely. I think Labor, Federal, I think Labor did um, make some announcements around social housing build program. Um, that's but, true. That's true. Yeah. In fact, quite a, quite a good proposal announced well before the election campaign. In fact, the Future Fund is, um, is, is I think, a really promising um, proposal. I think the ambition for, I believe it's 30,000 um, dwellings, is a good start. Mm. Um, look, it's great to see the federal government heading back into involvement on the issue. And, and you know, we've heard in a, for a number of years now that it's not the federal government's responsibility, mm. social and affordable housing. It's good to put that away and, and get on with it. Um, but for me, 30,000 is a good start. Yeah, it is, it's a great start when we haven't really had any indications up until now that um, the Commonwealth was going to get back into that into that gig. So it is a, it is a promising start. And I, th I think what was missing still was we've got some really interesting, well, some really challenging supply side, supply chain issues in terms of uh, some of the, some of the materials used in housing construction and um, while a lot of things are manufactured within this country and, and the supply chains are domestic, there are a number of commonly used timber framing elements and, and other pieces that are that require overseas manufacture at this point. Yeah. And, the, and those supply lines are very much clogged and unlikely to resolve quickly. Things that go through the Ukraine, things that go through China are not flowing well and are not likely to anytime soon. So we need to be thinking more about alternative supply chains, alternative materials, um, and particularly for our volume builders. That's very challenging because they're often locked into agreements. We need yep. to be more nimble. We need to have more internal capacity to, to build those things. We also have some workforce challenges. You know, skilled migration programs have been a source of, of uh, as a solution to that, but we need to look at that as well as training um and um and really build our our capacity as well so you know we need to be able to build more houses faster yeah absolutely it's interesting you say that because up here in the northern territory um there have been some difficulties in central australia getting getting maintenance work done because of the shortage of skilled labor i mean there's plenty of work but there's not enough uh staff and i think uh, there's a little bit of concern coming through about the um, brisbane olympics and uh, i guess the competition for builders and building tradespersons around regions and around well, the country. I think that's right. And increasingly, we're starting to see competition between locations for where yeah. where the workforce is going to be. And, yeah. and you know, the, the the population shifts over over the last couple of years, you know, during, during the pandemic, particularly where a lot of people have moved. I mean, I'm Melbourne-based. A lot of people have moved from Melbourne um, to the regions in Victoria, but in similar things in other states, but also movement between states where... Remote working and and um, and other sort of factors over the last couple of years have, have had people rethinking where they want to live. Absolutely. Now that's changing the demand in regional areas and really putting pressure on those markets um, when most of the capacity is centred on the big cities. And we need to be more nimble there too. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because you know um, it's really interesting. I say to people all the time, there can be some great. Uh, lifestyle opportunities and great uh, career opportunities uh, in the regions. I've worked in quite a few regions over the years, and uh, I, you know, it's, it offers some 
amazing uh, opportunities uh, uh, for work, for families, for recreation. It's uh, it's a great lifestyle, and the regions are promoting themselves. They've been promoting themselves for some time now about those lifestyle attractions, and um, especially, I guess, with the ability to, for more people to work from home with high speed internet and uh, and good services and infrastructure starting to come online. This housing thing seems to have caught us all out a little bit there, but I think how on earth would a region, I guess, Michael, be able to forecast how what its housing needs might be in 10, 20 years? It's going to depend on a lot of factors, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. And I guess, you know, we've we've just opened our research agenda to new topics and 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 what you're describing actually neatly descri- <laughs> describes one of the topics we've put in this year where, you know, we've been looking at the regional markets and the, the pressures on them. Um, for the last couple of years and, and the changing demands for, for housing in regional centres. What we're looking at now is wanting to understand how local governments in the regions, how regional communities are, well, what they're expecting to happen over the next few years and, and how they're planning for it, doing about it. You know, do we think that these demands are going to continue, that, that people are, have decided to move to the regions and that's where they're going to be from now on? It's, a, it's the new world order. Mm. Or is this a, um, a pandemic piece that people will then drift back to the big cities for, for employment reasons? It's, it's, it's really hard to know. So we'll be looking into that in, in some detail um, with fantastic. the agenda. Mm. Fantastic. Hey, I was, I was interested in a conversation around home ownership in, uh, by both major parties in the election. Um, we do know that some of the independents, the Greens and others we're talking about, as you mentioned, the supply side for social and affordable housing, that's, that's very much needed. I'm just um, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts around this whole notion still in Australia that home ownership is uh, is the be all and end all. I mean, up here in the Northern Territory, we've got 50% of us are renters, um, much higher statistic than um, nationally. And I, of course, we appreciate that owning a home is a very um, important um, source of, of wealth and stability and security uh, for, for many people, for most people possibly. But there are alternative pathways. We've seen that overseas and we've also seen in Australia some people who are mobile and want to uh, need to move around with work and frankly don't want to buy housing in new uh, locations <laughs> where they're moving to. Have you got any thoughts on whether that's, uh, you know, I guess that Lots of questions. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I'm not sure that I have answers, but I have lots of questions. And, and, and look, at the risk of repeating myself, one of the topics that's in the new agenda is really <laughs> looking at our ten-year futures. It's, yeah. it's you know you're nailing the the policy concern here. I mean, we've got a, a housing policy infrastructure that 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 presupposes home ownership as the the mainstream destination for most households. Mm. You know, retirement income policy kind of assumes you own a home. Mm. Um, we need to be much more savvy to the more complex reality that we're living in now. That isn't the the, the be all and end all for most households. It's it's you know it is certainly still a destination, but people's housing careers are much more complex than they once were, and we need to have systems within the housing policy system, but also in other policy areas that re, that respect and and represent the different tenures that people occupy, and also and as you say, be more savvy to some of the other. Uh, less traditional tenure formats that, that are growing overseas but are probably slower growing in this country. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a really good question. Well, things like, what are you referring to there? Things like shared equity or...? Shared, look, shared equity, I think, has a lot of potential. It's, mm-hmm. it's been a, a very successful model in, in WA and SA for, for a number of years. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to see a national program in that space. You know, it's been 
smaller shared equity programs in, in most jurisdictions over the last 20 years at some point, but not necessarily enduring the, the WA and NSA examples are clearly the front runners in the space, but there's absolutely room for a national program. That's, I think that's really important actually. Mm. Sorry, Todd. Um, yeah, go on. But also, you know, ten, you know the, the, the tenants in common type models, the, the co-purchasing and a range of other sort of um, community land trust models that, that get used in other countries, but are much more restricted in their use here. I think, you know, there's a, there's a range of other ways we can understand people's home ownership or, or home housing consumption yeah. um, and, and have policy settings that support those other ways. Michael, there's been so much written, even just over the last five years that I've been in in this area, uh, around rental stress and um, and risk people at risk of homelessness. Uh, mm. We've seen in a, in regional markets since the pandemic just how difficult it is to find uh, any place to rent, let alone be able to afford it. Um, and so, just almost daily, there are stories of people in hardship uh, and increasing numbers of people facing that very real risk or actually experiencing homelessness. Why do you think the major parties are so reluctant or were so reluctant to talk about that during the election? Well, I guess because these are, these are challenges that don't have quick solutions. You know, they're not, um, you know, we can't roll out a policy and, and then, you know, next week, problem solved. They're, you know, housing construction takes time, um, you know, planning approval, the actual construction process, you know, it's a... It's a 12 to 24 months sort of cycle mm. if you have the land in the first place. If you need to purchase the land, it's even longer, and particularly if you need to clear it from previous drawings or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, it's these are slow burn activities um, in many respects. So, you know, the, the the media news cycle doesn't work terribly well with slow response answers. No, that's true. You know, we need to invest so that in a couple of years' time we're really starting to, to get some solutions. But we also need some fast action responses as well it's yes yeah. um it's, it's a complex it. issue and I, I think you know the way public discourse around these these issues tends not to deal well with complexity um but this is a complex topic and and um quick grab answers you know short short sound bites don't solve it yeah that's right it does kind of go back to the notion of having a national housing and homelessness strategy um, which Federal Labor, now the incoming government, has committed to. Do you think they will address a number of these as part of a comprehensive housing strategy? I mean, I know a lot of people have asked for a housing strategy. What would be the key elements there that, that you would want to see in that? I mean, for me, the, 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 first, the first piece I want to see is that there is genuine engagement between Commonwealth and states and genuine cooperation and, and collaboration on the project. You know, if, if they're working at cross-purposes or or just not coordinating well. There's a lot of inefficiency. And, and to be honest, we're not going to solve any of these problems without both those tiers of government working together. Mm -hmm. um, look, that has, that has I think, deteriorated in recent years, and it's really important to bring that dialogue back. I mean, the Housing Minister's Council was disbanded um, a number of years ago now, and, and with that, sort of some of the um, intergovernment functions that go with it, you know, COEC's been replaced with National Cabinet or partially replaced. We need to bring back some of the, the, those structures, get those dialogues happening. But there's also, it's really important to not just see this as a, um, as a Commonwealth and state issue. It's also, there are sectors involved in this that are, play really important parts. The community housing sector is absolutely one of them, but industry as well. And, and um, any really useful 
housing strategy at a national level needs to involve all of those players. Mm. Absolutely. So, you know, my, my, my strong push is that it be, you know, um, highly consultative in its, in its development, comprehensive in its approach. Sure. We've, we've heard there's some interesting work being done by Chia nationally and with uh, Andy Nygaard from Sydney University and others around housing aggregators and boost projects that I guess try and come up with a, a, a mechanism to attract interest from institutional investors into housing, similar to, I guess, the US. Have you got some thoughts on, I guess, the prospects in Australia of attracting institutional investment from superannuation funds or other sources? Oh, I mean, Andy, Andy's at Swinburne rather than Sydney. but Swin, so, Swinburne, well, my apologies, Andy. Yeah. All, they're, they're all part, both universities are part of the area networks. <laughs> all good from my view, but... Um, but look, yeah, look, I think, you know, the, the bond aggregator that, that what has been called the National Housing Finance Investment Corporation, soon to be called Housing Australia, um, has been, is, is, is heavily based on, on her research. You know, we're, we're highly supportive of that concept. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been very successful in, in attracting, um, you know, financiers, superannuation funds and the like to invest with community housing organisations through those bonds. We're also seeing some of those super funds starting to work directly with larger community housing providers. And I think that's a really positive step, not waiting on the bonds, but just going going directly. And, and yeah. I'm starting to hear things about uh, engagements of that type that are larger than the the funding limit of, of the bonds, which sort of sit at about two and a half million uh, billion. Um, <laughs> That's another zero or two. It's a big zero. <laughs> we'll take it if we can get it. And the more the better. But um, you know, this is this. It's not like there's a there's a point at which we want to stop building more affordable housing. We we need more. That's, that's yeah. all there is to it. So look, I, I think every mechanism that we can bring to this is is positive. I'm also really interested in in not just the the large scale investment. I think there's absolutely a role for that. I think there's a role for build to rent models that that target more affordable housing, not just, I think what we're starting to see in this country is the build to rent heading towards a premium model. Yeah. Um, where it's a sort of a, a service plus version of, 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 of apartments. And, and, you know, while there's a place for that, I think an affordable scheme within build to rent is something that's that's not quite hit the ground. No. Um, but um, I'm also really interested in how we, we incentivize small-scale investors, you know, mum and dad investors. So, mm. um, you know, we had in RAS as a as a scheme that, that delivered something like 35,000 properties across the country um, over four or five tranches and then and then get cut off. And the last of those properties falling out now is 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 a gap we need to to fill. It is a gap, isn't it? It'll be interesting to see how um, that um, plays out over the coming years when those entitlements um, wind up. I, I guess also um, advocates like ourselves, National Shelter and others, have been calling for an increase in the rate of Commonwealth uh, rent assistance, which has completely um, not kept up with the increase in um, rents uh, over recent years. So mm-hmm. um, it will be interesting to see that because with the loss of NRAS and I guess um, you know further uh, cost of living pressures we've heard today, expecting to see utility prices, energy prices go up, that people have to pay. There'll be, inflate, there's inflation is coming, there's going to be more cost pressures. So it's something that's going to have to be addressed, I would imagine. Absolutely. I mean, I, you, you mentioned rent assistance. I, I, one, of, one of my frustrations, I guess, is that, that we haven't heard much about reform of Commonwealth rent assistance. 
um, or at least not much from people who are likely to be in a position to to make that decision. You know, advocates mm -hmm. have talked about it, but you know, a very published work um, in 2020, I think it was, that um, that looked at the efficiency of CRA as a mechanism. And, and mm -hmm. broadly speaking, it, it found that um, about half the households that were receiving CRA don't technically need it in terms of rental stress, but about half the families who do need CRA are not getting it. Right. Um, so that's that's a that's a targeting issue, and and the the research actually went through a series of modelled a series of scenarios and, and looked at ways to better target it, and in fact came up with a an approach that would with fairly minimal investment improve the targeting dramatically, that so that the Commonwealth could be spending less on CRA but getting better outcomes for it. Yeah, now, you could argue that if they kept the this expenditure where it is and did that approach, they could raise the the rate for those individuals' households, because it's not a huge sum of money per household mm. that's going through it. The total to the Commonwealth is very significant, six, mm. six and a half million. Um, but um, we could make that more efficient and more effective, then we'd, we'd get a better benefit for, for many people. Sure. Hey, I'm really interested to hear uh, your thoughts on this one. So coming from a regional development uh, job, I guess, role before I came up to the Territory, uh, infrastructure was a really important part of regional development. And now we have uh, social and affordable housing in uh, Infrastructure Australia's infrastructure plan, which I think is really exciting that people can start to think of housing as key infrastructure to enable population growth, economic growth, new industry development in our regions and so forth. What, how do you think that might play out from here in terms of people picking up that housing is not just about you know, providing a roof over someone's head on, which is vitally important, of course, but it actually makes good economic sense to have housing so that we can actually attract workers. Um, that's right. Build I, mean, population. I think that's right. I, I, I think it's interesting. I, I think it is a positive that that, that social housing is in, in the Infrastructure Australia piece um, as, as social infrastructure, but I guess long-term we need to be thinking not just as social infrastructure, but as economic infrastructure. It is, it is core infrastructure every bit as much as roads and and wires and, and so on um and, and the other sort of i guess classical elements what we think of as infrastructure um, we already have a, a dual conversation around housing where it is shelter but it's also a, a financial asset an investment vehicle and, and um i guess the unfortunate thing is to some extent the 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 property dialogue dominates over the housing dialogue mm. so, a sense of it as a financial vehicle rather than a, a place of shelter sure. um, is, is I think, unfortunate. It's, that's going to be hard to shift but um, because it is a, a significant financial vehicle. It's the biggest investment most people make and, yeah. and is their nest egg. Sure. So um, balancing those conversations more over time is going to be really challenging. But, sure. but as, you know, the recognition of, of housing as infrastructure is, is an important part in, in balancing those stories. Do you think it could be a breakthrough in a way some people think about housing? Some people potentially who may not have been so interested before in social and affordable housing. Look, I think the fact that it's in the Infrastructure Australia report it re reflects a breakthrough. I think, you know, it wasn't in previous IA papers. Um, now, what happens going forward with, with their next report, their next round, you know, do we go further? Is it, It'll be really interesting to see, but I think it certainly has influenced um, people's thinking and, and mm. opened some eyes, which is, I mean, a good thing. 
you think we've been a bit slow to pick that up, that relationship that housing does have as infrastructure? Oh, look, I, 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 again, it's a, it's, it's a complexity issue. It's, it is, a, it is, I mean, it's, it's tangibly true, but it's, it's a third way to think about housing and two ways is, is already quite a lot. So, um, <laughs> we're, simple, we're simple people at the end of the day. You know, how many different ways can you, can you, can you stand in the driveway and, and look at the house and think, oh, that's <laughs> my finances, that's my home, that's key infrastructure for the, for, for the country. You know, it's, 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 it gets tricky to, to sort of switch lenses, I guess. But yeah. um, I think it's enabling infrastructure, though, isn't it? It enables right. economic That's development. Um, interesting stuff. So what do you see now the election is over as the prospects from here? What, what do you think might we might expect to see coming out uh, from Canberra and the states potentially working well, together? I, I think I, I guess there's a couple of things that I'm watching for that I'm really curious to see how they play out. And 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 look, as, as we speak, the, the ministerial appointments haven't been announced for, for the housing minister, for example, so we're not entirely certain I guess we've all got some some hunches but um, there are various rumours swirling around so I'm not entirely sure he'll be in that that seat but um, if there is someone in the seat which won't be long um, it'll be um, a lot of a lot of conversation to have about the direction I think you know the the national strategy that you alluded to earlier is really important and, and having that dialogue to support it is is a crucial first step. We don't want to be sort of shooting from the hip with random guesses here. Um, but look, you know, the, the the incoming government have have marked out a, a reasonably um, complex agenda for for the housing space. Um, they've also shown more in, more uh, fresh thinking for the the cities and urban infrastructure um, agenda. So I think there's a I guess a renewed energy in that space. That um, that we're certainly very interested in, and 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 the the connection between those agendas will be will be a curious thing. I mean, I, I don't want to sort of present housing as a, a city's a big city issue only. It's it's absolutely not. And in yeah. fact, remote housing and, and regional housing are profound challenges, um, and they're ones that we're certainly very conscious of. I mean. Um, at Ahuri, we've, we've, as I mentioned, you know, just released our next research agenda. So this is for the work to commence early next year. Um, so it's open to, to the universities for bids at the moment. And, and the big ticket items that we're thinking about um, include um, the roles of government, of, of different levels of government um, around Aboriginal housing. And, and, you know, what is our long-term approach here? How do we support self-determination and get better housing outcomes? Yep rather than having changing approaches every few years. And I think we've, we've been, um, I think, impeded by some inconsistency in approach and some, some lack of long-term um, commitment to an approach. I don't have a strong view personally about what the approach looks like, but I think um, we need to arrive at something that we can support long-term and, and really continue to work in that space properly because there's this simply not good enough at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're also really concerned around um, natural disasters. And so, you know, the impact on housing supply yeah. and housing mm -hmm. systems um, and the role of housing policy there in disaster preparedness and responsiveness, I think are, are really big questions for this country. I mean, the last few years we've seen um, increasing impacts on our housing system from natural disasters, you know, bushfires, floods, mm -hmm. cyclones, <laughs> 
sure that we've seen any volcanoes yet. No, it's uh, always a first. <laughs> but you know, yeah, earthquakes. You know, you name it. It's 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 all sort of the the this you know the sense that climate change is impacting on our housing um, and exacerbating some of those supply issues. So you know, the recent floods in in particularly impacted uh, Queensland and northern New South Wales. Um, really impacted areas where the vacancy rates were already incredibly low and really there wasn't spare housing available. No, that's right. Um, and, and then a whole lot of housing gets damaged or, or destroyed. Well, rebuilding those towns, those communities is not a simple thing. If there's nowhere for the residents or the, or the you know, the, the traders or emergency workers coming in wanting to, to do work to help rebuild the city uh, or the town, yeah, right. uh, have nowhere to live. So it's... It's, it's hugely problematic. There are people still in tents from, from the 2019-20 bushfires, apparently. And yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to fathom, isn't it, that that's still the case? But I guess in the Northern Territory, we do see a lot of that, Michael. You know, I was yeah. I was talking to, uh, was, I put a question in rather to a conference uh, call today that Shelter WA had around uh, a recent uh, paper they've just done with Professor Fadeo and others around uh, funding for homelessness services. Mm. And I was interested in, in his view about uh, how funding should be, uh, I guess, cut and diced under the National Housing and Homelessness Agreement. Um, there's, you know, they're saying quite understandably, there's not enough funding to meet demand and um, services are overstretched and they get mm. and, around $170 million a year under the, under the agreement. And it's not enough, clearly. Uh, and we get uh, $20 million a year. Mm. Uh, and we have, you know, more than double their rate of homelessness. So we've got some real challenges. But one of the things I was going to say was around mobility um, of people in remote communities coming to town as well. So for us, it's also important, uh, while housing is vitally important and around 54% of people living in remote houses are in overcrowded houses, severely overcrowded houses mm. still, a long way to go. But also when they come to regional centres, there's a need for short stay accommodation. People coming to town for... Um, I guess, medical reasons or cultural, sporting, family reasons, a whole raft of reasons. So I guess in terms of the infrastructure conversation we are having before, that's very important, I guess, to make sure that we recognise the mobility that we have um, in Aboriginal remote communities. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Yeah, I agree with all of that. <laughs> we'll just get you to sign on as a... On the, uh, when we get the... Uh, what do you call it? The um, I don't know, We'll pass it around for signatures later. Look forward to that. Um, no, but it is an opportunity, I guess, when we're reviewing the Naha next year. But um, I don't expect you to, to uh, I mean, comment I, I on think, that. I think you know, this is an interesting time for that, isn't it? With the Productivity Commission um, currently reviewing the WJ, um, look, I'm, I'm sure you've put a submission into that process. There are continuing consultations going into that. Ahuri certainly put a, a fairly yeah. lengthy submission in, but um, there's a lot to to look at with that agreement and the nature of it you know, compared to earlier Commonwealth state housing agreements, mm. uh, I guess, is telling. So where, where that goes from here will be really interesting. It will to be see. interesting, and, yeah. And, and it will give some, I guess, uh, signals to the intent yeah. Um, for a national strategy. No, absolutely. It's a great opportunity to put up evidence and look at what's working and what needs to be done from here. Mm. Michael, um, in terms of, I guess, the link between the, the great research that um, Ahuri puts out and the role that we have as advocates, have you got any thoughts, I guess, around 
how well we're doing or not doing in getting that excellent research out as evidence-based advocacy? What oh, we're look, I mean, doing more? Yeah, no, well, I think it's always more, but there's capacity challenges. I mean, um, yeah, we, we're, um, I mean, my sense is, look, we, we, I've always been, or tried to be clear, have another try at that. <laughs> 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 trying to say about three things at once that I haven't no got worries. any of them yet. Let me let me go again. Um, Ahui doesn't. We wouldn't frame ourselves as advocates per se. We're um, you know we generate evidence for a policy audience um, to try and meet their needs. We we are custodians of that evidence base and stewards of the evidence base in the sense that we we look to build it to complement what's already there and, and to extend the 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 use of it and to champion that evidence to policymakers, but not from an I guess not from an advocacy perspective, more from a, a cooperative a, a collaboration perspective. You know, we 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 would um, prefer to think of ourselves as more inside the tent than than um, you know out on the out on the street um, calling for change. But um, you know, so we're, we're trying to work cooperative directly with governments. We publicly publish all of our all of our research. That's part of our, our agreement, um, and um, and we're, it's not at the sign off of of ministers. Thankfully, we don't need to get nine different ministers to sign off every yeah. report, or yeah. we would not be publishing twenty five to thirty reports a year. Absolutely, <laughs> um, that's right. You know, we have a we have a good system for that 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 gives them um, you know some a heads up of what's coming, but. Um, allows us to publish that work. And, and so there's a public good um, intent there that, that means that we freely publish the work. It's, it's freely available. It's certainly there for policymakers to use, but equally it's there for advocates to, to pick up for uh, the community housing sector to make use of and make practice changes, homelessness sector as well, and, and, and industry too, increasingly. But um, there's a role there for advocacy to, to use that evidence to support their arguments. and. My sense is broadly that there's there's pretty good recognition of Uhuri's work by advocacy organisations, by the Peaks, and by other um, advocacy voices. So you know, I I I think that that's generally pretty good. Um, you know, there are times when we see messages coming from from advocacy groups that doesn't necessarily reflect our evidence, but that's that's for each you know advocacy group to decide for themselves what where they want to base their messaging. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, I think we're, we're reasonably prominent in that space. I'm comfortable. I guess what I was thinking in asking that question was um, there are different uh, reports uh, at different times that talk about the costs of homelessness and the costs of um, the avoided costs that you could have by housing, by having, um, uh, yeah, by having a, providing a bed, basically, instead of having someone uh, sleeping in the street or sleeping rough. And there are obviously costs for the health system and interactions with the justice system, a whole range of other mental health and other costs that we know are incurred when people experience homelessness. I guess I'm just thinking that's a challenge sometimes for because in putting all of that disparate research into, a, I guess, a knockout argument, we can say to the government, look, you know, it might, it might cost $100 million to build housing, but over 20 years, you might get back $160 million, for example. Right, so you know we know that the um, the, the cost just to, just a to government um, of, of housing homeless people you know is less than keeping them homeless, um, which you know while it's slightly counterintuitive perhaps, um, you know it's, it's it's reasonably established, but but getting that message across is is a continuing 
piece of work. And I guess, you know, we try to, to support that in some ways through, through our website where we have a lot of editorial content. It's not just we publish the reports and it's a repository and nothing else. You know, there's, a, there's an ongoing news feed that responds to current issues, that summarises the research we've published and draws in other evidence at times sure. to, to build that picture. So that's, I think, an important dimension to what we do. Absolutely. And of course, the conference program where we, we really focus on bringing together di the different communities. It's not a research conference that we run. It's not a policy conference. It's research, policy and practice all, all in the room. Um, and that dialogue is, is crucial. I'm glad you mentioned that because you do have a national homelessness conference coming up in Canberra in August. So it is an opportunity, I guess, for people who might be watching and considering whether they want to come down to Canberra. Um, it's up, you know, what, what can they it's expect? true. I wasn't going to plug the conference particularly, no, but um, but look, it, it is, your I, think a, I think, you know, it being in Canberra um, August this year is is a great opportunity. The timing is really good with a, with a you know, a changing government after nine years. There's a, I guess, a fresh opportunity um, and some fresh conversations to have. So, I you know, in, in many ways, the timing is quite fortuitous um, for us to come to Canberra this year. Um, it's looking like being a, a, a pretty solid program, so um, it should be pretty worthwhile. Right. And just in terms of wrapping up and bringing some of this conversation together, a lot of the people I speak to who have been in the sector for a long, long time sometimes think, you know, this, it's obviously a very hard slog. It's hard to see change happen. And you mentioned before, these things can't happen overnight. It's, it's, you know, it's going to take some time to get housing built at scale at the levels that we know that we need. But... Mm. Given where we sit today, um, I guess after the May 21 election, we've got a new government. Do you feel optimistic? Do you feel there are green shoots starting to appear that can give people some hope that we can make an impact in this area? I, I, I probably feel a sense of, of optimism and hope after every election. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> There's a new government here. Let's see what they're going to do. And, 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 you know, new governments, whether it's a returning government or a change of government, often mean new ministers often mean new, you know, senior policy makers. So there's, there's constant change. And I guess, you know, for us, we work across all of the states and territories as well as the Commonwealth. So there's, there's always a new minister somewhere. Right. <laughs> um, but look, I, I do think that there is a bit of a, um, a sense of, of an opportunity now with, with a change of government. So um, some fresh perspectives and some fresh energy, perhaps. Right. Um, that um, that gives us all a chance to have another run at it. Wonderful. Well, it's been great talking to you, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. If people do want to find out a little bit more information about Ahuri or the conference, uh, what how can they find that out? Uh, the website ahuri.edu.au has um, has all of our research on it, but has the the conference. There's links there to to a, a subsite for the conference itself and and our ongoing program of of webinars and smaller conferences and so on. We, we have the two big multi-day ones, the housing conference and the homelessness conference, that generally alternate in year, but lots of other events as well. So there's plenty there and you can subscribe to, to our various news streams and so on and um, lots of information comes through. I should say just also to wrap up, in case you weren't aware uh, or some of the viewers that um, we do have a community housing growth strategy now in the Northern Territory, which will see up to 40% of urban public housing transferred over the next five years. That's quite exciting news for us. And hopefully we get to see some of our community housing providers uh, leverage off that and start seeing some new supply coming through 
there. So you did mention that before. I think that's exciting. And I know uh, a lot of a lot of us. I think we're sending down quite a not. I would say a bus load, but I think we're sending quite a few people down to Canberra in uh, in August, Michael. So we look forward to seeing you and your team down there. Fantastic. I believe it's meant to be a convoy when you head to Canberra. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks again, Michael, for joining us. It's been our, been our pleasure, and we'll uh, see you next time. And thanks everybody for watching in. Great to talk to you, Peter. You've been listening to episode one of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.